Welcome to A Trauma-Informed Life, where I share my perspective on improving the U.S. healthcare system as a trauma-informed caregiver, industry insider, mother, woman, and human being. I'm Erica Olenski-Johansson, and this is my journey, encountering and engaging with the system as a chronic, complex caregiver. My hope is that sharing my observations will create a dialogue that helps to improve the experience of healthcare consumers everywhere. In 2016, I attended the Healthcare Internet Conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. I was a bright-eyed millennial, slightly blinded by optimism, but grounded in motherhood. I had a two-year-old son at home at the time and was in a new role at a digital marketing agency in Dallas, where I was tasked with helping develop a healthcare-focused service offering for the agency. Alongside the chief communications officer, formerly at Tenet Healthcare, he and I were tasked with developing not only our service offering to service healthcare, but to actually think about how digital marketing could serve healthcare more broadly as an industry, and then develop a vertical within the organization that would do exactly that. Healthcare social media in that role was top of mind. Up to this point in my career, I had been in several roles with many different organizations in healthcare innovation up to that point. Notably, I was the founder of the HITSM Twitter community that was founded in the 2010-2011 timeframe. So I was engaged and not unfamiliar at all with the patient experience and patient engagement conversations that were happening there. But alongside things like data integrity and data ownership and HL7 standards and even more niche conversations like that. The HITSM tweet chat was a fertile ground for many conversations happening in the health IT space. And it was really interesting to have that experience leading a lot of that dialogue, mostly as just somebody curious about what the future of healthcare could look like. In those conversations and in those Twitter chats, we talked about the patient experience. It was a trending topic at the time, mostly fueled by social media. We talked about data ownership and should patients own their own data or who actually does own their own data. And then we also talked about social determinants of health or what was kind of the predecessor to that. Um, we talked a lot about it being a strategic focus for organizations as they were thinking through how they could better improve outcomes for all patients across the board. More often than not, though, a lot of the conversations were very future oriented and they were very focused on where do we go from here in terms of our industry focus and truly in terms of all of our careers, everybody contributing to these conversations were curious about where our individual contributions were going, both as patients and as professionals and as future caregivers in some cases as well. This was 2016 when this happened, and a lot has happened in the last six years. Now in 2022, I reflect on all the things that have transpired since then. At HCIC, the national presidential election occurred in the same time frame as the actual conference. So I have poignant memories of sitting in the cosmopolitan lobby, having some drinks with friends that I had just met and talking about the future of the world. At that time in the 2016 election, Trump was being voted into office. And our world really at that time was a, a notable point to reflect on when we think about where healthcare was to that point and where it's come since then. So I got home from a conference and proceeded with working alongside my colleague, Steve, at this digital marketing agency in Dallas. And 
we developed some really exciting programs at this agency and did some really cool work. Ultimately, that led me to getting introduced to another project through the agency that was developing the smart city of the future. It was a bit of a stealth project. And my role in that was to be a voice for the future patient, human, caregiver, et cetera. And I was there to help make sure that as this future smart city of tomorrow thought about healthcare, that it kept the patient and the human at the center of it all. It was an exciting project and very energizing, but it was also a real challenge too. The, the topics that we addressed were no different than those we had been talking about as an industry, except the conversation was really new with, with other engineers less familiar with the language and, and less familiar with what, what was being talked about relative to data ownership. And some of the nuances that come with healthcare were less thought about in other industries where there was more control. I loved that job. I loved that project. It was so energizing and so energizing so that I actually started to develop quite a bit of confidence with myself professionally that translated into my husband at the time and I deciding to actually get pregnant with our second child and grow our family. So in the spring of 2018, we found out that I was expecting our second child and I was thriving in my career. I was engaged and exhilarated at this job, working on this very futuristic concept, building the smart city of tomorrow. And in May of 2018, the agency that had employed me to work on this project fell apart. And I found out the week that I was announcing at work that I was pregnant, I found out that I lost my job. They couldn't pay me anymore. They couldn't even pay me the PTO. So I found myself five months pregnant or nearly so without work and needing to figure out how to pivot from there. So I was resourceful as I have been several times in my career. And I leaned into the uncertainty, not in the Sheryl Sandberg way necessarily, but had to kind of piece things together as best I could and tap into endurance that really didn't know existed until I was put in that pressure cooker situation. So found some work as a contractor and piecemealed some things together and worked until my due date. My husband at the time also struggled a bit with his own mental health and work. And he changed jobs around the same time. Unfortunately, about one month after my son was born, at the beginning of 2019, he and I both found ourselves without work. I had taken time off for maternity leave as a contractor, which just gives no assurances. And he was laid off from his new job. We both started 2019 without work, wondering how the heck are we going to make a living for our family and ensure that our kids are taken care of. And with a one month old at home, it's a terrifying place to be in. And I felt like I had been in this fight or flight state for seven months at this point because I had been laid off pregnant. So I, I thought the grind was over and then I didn't realize it was just actually beginning. We recalibrated, we tried to focus on mental health. And in March of that year, 2019, my husband at the time and I decided to sell our house. We were going to move to where we wanted to live and then find work there because we were struggling to find some jobs in the Dallas area that seemed to best fit for us in our career trajectory. In May of 2019, with a five-month-old and a four-year-old at home, we listed our house that we had built 
intending it for it to be a forever home. We listed it for sale and planned to move to Denver, Colorado. On May 17th, we accepted an offer on the sale of the house, six days after we listed it for nearly list price, which was incredible. At the time, the real estate market hadn't completely exploded quite yet, but it had great returns and we were very grateful for what we were able to, to earn on the, the property itself, having only been there a few years. So we went to REI after that and spent a little time shopping around, dreaming about all the camping trips we would make that summer as a family with two little boys. And we bought some backpacks and a tent and a hammock, fully intending to backpack through the summer once we arrived at our new home in Denver. Friday night, the same day that we accepted an offer on the sale of the house, I took my youngest son into the doctor after he'd been throwing up for about four days at that point and hadn't run a fever. We were supposed to go out of town that weekend to go finalize our rental in Denver, and something just wasn't right. And I thought, as a mom, you know, I need to just get him fluids, if anything, get him get him access to some basic medical care because I'm sure he's just fighting a bug and whatever it is, we'll get out of his system once we get him some treatment and then he can rest for a day before we head on the airplane to Denver. I took him into the ER and the ER doctor and the triage looked at him and was a little concerned when I arrived. And I hadn't quite seen him in that light of the ER fluorescent lighting yet. But looking at him in there was concerning. And granted, nobody looks beautiful in those light in that lighting anyway. <laughs> but I could tell my son was worse off than I realized. So the triage nurse and the ER doctor come in and they they look at my son and they say, you know, I think his vitals are actually worse off than we, we had initially thought. So we're gonna have you go over here to the ICU room of the ER. And the ER doctor was very sweet, very comforting. She came over and you know could tell I was an engaged mom and was really you know involved in in his day to day care, obviously. And she asked me if the soft spot on his head felt more firm than I was used to seeing. Now I'd been keeping an eye on that all week because I was kind of told that you know your hydration as an infant is visible by the soft spot on your head. If you're dehydrated, that's going to be sunken in. Well, to the best of my knowledge, and what I could tell him was, yeah, his head was perfectly round. We hadn't had any issues all week. So she decided to order a CT scan of his head and took him back while I waited in a chair in front of the IC room that he'd been assigned. He came back to the room. They continue doing some vitals checking and keeping him alert and busy and trying to get more information. And as I'm sitting in the chair in front of the ICU room, the doctor walks up to me and she kneels down and just goes, oh, F. Use the expletive <laughs> version of that. And one, if your doctor is swearing at you, it's probably not a good thing. <laughs> but second of all, I mean, I was, you know, deer in headlights at that point. And she tells me that there's a mass on my son's brain and that he needs to be in front of the neuro team in Dallas as soon as possible. And I'm thinking, what does that mean? How do we get there? And she explained that transport's on its way and they're going to be moving him downtown. Like, okay. So we ultimately get care flighted to Dallas. 
And my son, I learned, is dying of a brain tumor that had wrapped around his brain stem and spinal cord, blocking all of the spinal fluid from his brain from draining down his spine, causing something called hydrocephalus, which is why the soft spot on his head never looked sunken in, even though he was dehydrated. The care team did an emergency MRI and discovered that the tumor was much more extensive than they had expected upon arrival and noted there were two main arteries running through the center of this tumor, fueling it quite substantially with a fresh supply of blood flow. So the team paused instead of doing surgery and proceeding with it immediately, they got him stable and had him comfortable through the weekend so that we could contemplate the intensity and severity of the surgery that we had to do Monday. And it was their plan too, to put an A team on this procedure because they knew the extent of the tumor that was going to be there that we had to tackle. When the doctor came to inform us of what was happening, he explained that there was more blood expected to be lost in a surgery of this nature than my son had in his entire body. So not only did they expect to do blood transfusions, but they expected, expected several blood transfusions. And then after a certain point, they weren't sure how well the body would, would clot the blood to preserve it from bleeding out in a procedure like this. The prognosis was not good going into this surgery, but somehow my son miraculously survived. And 14 hours later came out with nearly a full recovery. About a week later, a week or two later, he turned six months old. And on that, his six-month birthday, we learned that the pathology of this tumor was malignant, and it was an aggressive form of brain cancer called an anaplastic ependymoma. So this is one of those rare cancers, too, that Bray's Anatomy makes episodes about. True story. <laughs> there is actually one of those. And it usually is not occurring in infants. It may happen in toddlers and younger kids, but for the most part, it's happening in older kids and some adults. So the treatment protocol actually calls for a photon radiation, but under three years old, that's not a viable solution. A photon radiation would destroy the brain tissue to the point of it being irreparable. So with a brain that's developing, photon radiation would effectively render that person brain dead if they proceeded with that procedure that treatment protocol. So that wasn't an option on the table. And had it not been for a newer form of radiation called proton therapy, my son probably would have been placed in hospice care. Thankfully, he was, there is a form of radiation called proton therapy. And at that age, unfortunately, there weren't very many cases that they could point to of children successfully receiving proton therapy and developing cognitively the way they needed to. So our plan was actually to use chemotherapy to buy time until he could reach closer to one year old, at which point they would proceed with proton therapy. The proton therapy did ultimately occur, but before we were able to even cross that bridge, the doctors and care team decided alongside us as primary caregivers, my husband at the time and I, that a second surgery would double his chances of a long-term survival if we could go in and remove very minor and small pieces and fragments of the tumor that was remaining from the first surgery. 
So we went in on October 9th, 2019 to have a second surgery, lasted about nine hours. And my son survived the surgery again, miraculously. However, we learned in the post-op MRI that he had suffered a brainstem stroke as a complication from the surgery, rendering the right side of his body paralyzed completely and the left side of his face paralyzed. And something that's really common, more frequent than I realized, was that when you have intubations in young children, those intubations can cause vocal cord trauma. So a common occurrence after long surgeries is vocal cord paralysis in response to this trauma that occurs to the airway from intubations. And so when they went to extubate my son following the surgery, they weren't able to actually extubate him as they hoped. And after several attempts, it became aware to us that the trauma to the vocal cords from the intubation is probably not the only cause for his unsuccessful extubations. What we ultimately learned was that the brainstem stroke had paralyzed cranial nerves five, six, and seven, which control critical parts of the face, the mouth, and your vocal cords. So my son's vocal cords were paralyzed shut, and the way to move forward was for him to receive a trach and a feeding tube so that he could grow stronger and hopefully in time have the neurological recovery that would allow him to recover the use of his vocal cords to the point that he would, need, he would not need a trach. We're still hopeful and optimistic that that's the case. But even still to this day, my son still has a trach and a feeding tube as a result of that procedure. My son got through proton therapy and we went into inpatient rehab and he began his healing journey. And I did too, frankly. As a caregiver, so much of what you observe about the person you're caring for, in my case, it was my son, your energy is poured into those circumstances. And what I later learned was that the same adrenaline that fueled me to get through a lot of that also taxed me pretty heavily. So in a lot of this time, I began losing more of my hair to an autoimmune condition called alopecia that I had actually been navigating as a patient leading up to a lot of the a lot of this and, and frankly the pregnancy as well with my son. So I began losing more of my hair and alongside my son, we started to heal. Both of my sons, we all started to heal. And that journey has been incredibly eye-opening. And what I think is particularly unusual with our experience, not just, I mean, not the intensity of it, because I think in many ways, the intensity was, was profound, but cancer broadly is horrifying. And, and many people who have to traverse pediatric cancer, especially have horrifying stories that they have to live with the rest of their lives and heal from. My son, thankfully, is cancer-free today, but we are still reeling from the experiences that we had during his treatment and are still reeling from the experiences that we have to navigate day to day as a part of his medical complexity now. My context and experience in healthcare IT leading up to all of this created a very bizarre and otherworldly and out-of-body circumstance for me to experience because I had spent a career investing in the healthcare industry as an advocate for data ownership and patient engagement and outcomes-based care. And 
despite all of that, I did not realize what actually using healthcare was like until I had to walk that with my son. So today, with this podcast, with these insights, I want to share my story to hopefully inform the future of healthcare so that it is more dynamic, more prepared, and more trauma-informed, so that it can give better care to everybody. And then two, I hope that my story inspires other people to share theirs. The future of healthcare cannot be hypothesized. You can't make up patient stories. We must hear them firsthand. And so I hope that my story and these insights inspire others to do the same. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again.